2 Kings chapter 3. Three Stooges, the Three Stooges. That's the title of this evening's message. I, I tried not to be funny, but I kept coming back, or humorous, I should say. I kept coming back to that theme. Uh, it, it is an amazing chapter, offering lizard, uh, lizards. It's a lizard on the desert is a lizard. Lessons, offering lessons. We have kings, we have buffoons, musicians, soldiers, and a prophet. And, of course, all the other things that went into the ancient world of warfare. In verse 1, 2 Kings chapter 3, Now Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel in Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and reigned 12 years. In verse 2, And he did evil in the sight of Yahweh, but not like his father and mother, for he put away the sacred pillar of Baal that his father had made. Well, uh, there's, you know, you can get a study Bible or a commentary, and there's a lot of discussion on the timetable of the kings just from that. Now, Jeroboam, the son of Ahab, became king and for 18 years, but we're going to skip all of that. We're going to stick with the applications, I think, uh, that is going to hopefully better serve us as believers. Now, Jehoram, this king of the north of Israel, he is the son of Ahab and Jezebel. His brother Ahaziah, who was the one that fell through the lattice and died, uh, so he has succeeded his brother. And we get that in chapter 1 of Second Kings. He did steer, this king did steer the northern kingdom away from the worship of his parents, Ahab and Jezebel, worshiping the, the Baal and the um, Ashtoreth. But what he did is not steer them to Yahweh, but steer them to calf worship, which Jeroboam started when the nation split. And that calf worship was really saying Yahweh is represented by these golden calves, which is an anathema. And they were committed to this. And we look back at these stories, we just shake our heads. We say, how could they, how could they even think they could get away with this before God? So his reformation was worthless. He exchanged one fake God or two fake gods for two fake calves. Quite a bargain on idolatry street. Uh, Jehoshaphat, the good king, he's going to be one of the stooges too. As great of a king as he was, he's doing the biddings of another, which makes him the stooge. And that is of Jehoram. Remember, he did it with Ahab. Hey, I got a good idea. Jehoshaphat, put this bullseye on you, and I'll wear this camouflage, and we'll go out into battle together. And he does that, and it almost cost him his life. Well, here he is again, lined up with another abject unbeliever. Verse 3, Nevertheless, he persisted in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, who had made Israel sin. He did not depart from them. And it's just a thing, even in Christianity, where people are just, if you feel like it's one of the, it's the 11th commandment, thou shalt mix forbidden things with Christianity. They just do it with such abandonment. How unlike David, why not emulate King David 
<clears throat> of all the kings of Israel, they could have looked on the, 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 the list of kings and said, David's the one to follow. Back to this calf worship. Well, again, at the split of the nation, well, let's go further back, before the nation split, at the birth of the nation, when Moses was on the mountain talking to God, and the people were in the valley, and they became restless, as people do. And they said, as for this Moses, we don't know where he is. And we pick it up in Exodus 32, 4, because the people then came to Aaron and said, make us gods. And he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. Then he said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So, at the birth of the nation, they were saying Yahweh is to be represented by these calves, which is a forbidden practice. That's what, and I don't think I've been stressing that enough when we hit Jeroboam, sort of, I guess, subconsciously taking for granted that, well, we all know the story. But maybe here I have an opportunity to revisit this. The Jews in the days of Moses, when he was on the mountain, were not saying that the that the calves let us out of Egypt. They were saying Yahweh let us out and he is represented by these little statues, which he clearly forbade. And they knew better. They did it anyway. And the story with, with Aaron just gets further goofy. Moses, when he confronts Aaron, and Aaron tells him, I, I threw it into the fire and these, these came out. And Moses says nothing which was eloquent. It spoke, it said everything. When he just kind of like, what do you say to that, Aaron? Sit there and argue with him about that would be silly. Anyway, Jeroboam is reviving this calf worship. He started it to counteract the popularity of Solomon's temple, which was Yahweh's temple. This is where God wanted the people to worship, nowhere else. And so he creates, of course, a temple in, in the northern part of Israel and one in the southernmost part of, of, the, of the northern kingdom. And that's where he wanted the people to come worship instead of going to Jerusalem as God had said. And I'm reminded of one of my favorite poems, Maud Muller, for of all the sad words of tongue or pen, the saddest of these, it might have been. It might have been a great nation had they just followed the ten, just the first commandment would have been, put them in such a better position as a people and as individuals. Oh no, that was too much to ask. Well, we come to verse 4, keeping in mind now what we've got. We've got a king here who's abandoned mommy and daddy's religion for a, 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 just as bad religion, if not worse, because Yahweh's name is attached to it. It's more sinister. And we have the king of Edom, who is an unbeliever, and we have Jehoshaphat, a great man of God who just could not say no to bad people. Verse 4, Now Misha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, and he regularly paid the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. Well, this goes back now to chapter 1 where we read that Moab rebelled after Ahab died and his son Azariah comes to the throne. 
they said, well, we can take this guy, and so they rebelled. Well, this is why. They, they just, we can't. We're not going to keep paying this. Even if they could afford it, it's just insulting to them to still have to do it. So there's been some time for the kings to get their forces together, their plan together, and here we are in the third chapter where this is now taking place. So this resentment, of course, is they're not going to pay anymore. It's going to bring war. Um, this king of the Moabites, there is a stone that has survived and it is said to have originated with him that tells about his father and him dealing with Omri and, or Omri, Ahab and, and Jehoram, this, this battle here. And he centers it on Israel. He doesn't mention Judah. The stone still exists to this day. Uh, it goes on to tell about how these three kings that come against him fail in the end. And he then talks about how he launches raids into Israel and uses many of the captured Jews as slaves to build and do other things for himself. And now that's kind of important. So you can look that up, the, the, the Misha steel or the Misha stone. It's, 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 not, uh, it's something that's historical. Well, anyway, uh, and, and don't worry, the, the scholars debate some of it, and, and you know, they always do, because uh, it's a very ancient language, and they're not always sure of this and that, but they're minor points, it seems. Anyway, the Moabites, these are descendants of Moab, the son of Lot and his daughter, of course, that incestuous relationship. They uh, were a uh, just always against Israel. Now... Of course, uh, there are patches of peace between the two periodically, but also uh, the, the struggles. In Judges chapter 3, it is uh, dealing with the, Mo the Jews dealing with the Moabites. Uh, they opposed Saul, and they opposed uh, the Jews in David's day also. Solomon uh, has one of his many marriages to one of the Moabite women, <coughs> princesses, and that uh, it, it brought some peace for a while. It was a false peace. It was a sacrifice because what did he do? He put up shrines in Israel for Chemosh, their uh, primary god. So there's a lot of history here. There are other Moabites that we know about in Scripture. Balak, uh, he hired Balaam to come curse the Jews. And of course... Every time he opened his mouth to curse them, he ended up blessing them. That's in Numbers 22 and 24 through 24. Very good section of scripture. Eglon, he was the king that was assassinated by one of the Jewish judges, Ead. Ead is a no mess with guy. You know, he hid that dagger and he stabbed uh, Eglon, who was really big. He was so big, the Bible tells us that the fat just sort of enclosed around the dagger. It's a good children's story, and. Uh, then, uh, of course, he, he, he leaves, <laughs> climbs out the window, and they think he's in the bathroom, and they were embarrassed to go in, and by the time they go in, Eglon, uh, Ead is long gone. So, uh, anyway, uh, also Ruth, of course, the wife of Boaz, the grandmother of David, uh, she, um, she was from Moab. A little background information, refresh, of course, for most of us. Verse 5, but it happened when Ahab died that the king of Moab rebelled against the king. Okay, so that goes back to chapter 1, verse 1. A year earlier, 
before the rebellion in, in, in chapter 1, uh, the Moabites, the Ammonites, and other surrounding peoples warred against Judah, King Jehoshaphat. And he soundly defeated them. That's going to enter into this story. Now, Second Chronicles chapter 20, the chapter, Second Chronicles 19 and 20, read them together. They're really good chapters. It shows how this king just brought back the word of God, how he was attacked, you know, spiritually. Uh, they came against him after that and how God defeated them, taking from Second Chronicles 20, verse 4. So Judah gathered together to ask help from Yahweh, and from all the cities of Judah, they came to seek Yahweh. So uh, Jehoshaphat mustered the people. His love for Yahweh was infectious. It, it just caught on with all the people, and they rallied behind him, and there was a great victory in Israel. Now, Jehoshaphat has, an, he has over a million-man army. Uh, this is why Jehoram wants him to join him to come against uh, Moab, to take back, uh, to subject them again to tribute. Verse 6, So King Jehoram went out of Samaria at that time and mustered all Israel, that's the northern kingdom. Then he went and sent to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, saying, The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against Moab? And he said, I will go up. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. See, he's just this nice guy that just wants to please everybody instead of standing up against the people who need to be stood against. Now, Jehoshaphat's son, also named Jehoram, he married this Joram's daughter, Athaliah, she's a monster, and we'll get to her later. But um, that is sort of convenient for the northern king to say, hey, since we're, you know, in-laws, why don't you come to war with me and bring those million men? I could use them. And, of course, he doesn't have to come out and say it because Jehoshaphat is just gullible. And I don't know, maybe he was just bored sitting around the palace. Boy, sure wish somebody would ask me to do something. Anyway, it just seemed right for Joram to ask Jehoshaphat to go with him to punish Moab. And he said here in verse 7, I will go up. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Well, you know, the Christian has to make, keep that distinction. I am not like you are to the unbeliever. Even if it's a beloved family member. You know, there's, a, there's still that line. We, you could be a child, a parent, or it doesn't matter. I mean, we, we, we are you know, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, yes, but spiritually, we have different fathers. And we, this is not mean-spirited at all. In fact, to not keep this distinction would be mean-spirited because you, you're taking the truth and you're suppressing it. Why do that? And you don't have to, you know, you don't bring it up every Thanksgiving. Ha! My father's not your father. I mean, you don't pick fights and stuff like that. But we still, you know, we keep our identity of who we are spiritually um, with the hope that one day we will be successful in seeing them come to Christ. Well, um, Jehoshaphat, always wanting to do right, but unable to filter out wrong and therefore he assisted 
bad people, and that's why the, the prophet confronted him. You know, what is this? You love, you hate, you, you know, you, you love the people that hate Yahweh. What is your problem? And uh, you get that in Second Chronicles 19. I, I don't want to read it because I, I read it often, it feels like. It's a good guy with bad friends. So just a, a quick review. He befriended Ahab, went to war with Ahab, was almost killed because of Ahab. He befriended and went into business with Ahaziah, the one that fell through the lattice, the son of Ahab, and God destroyed his, his business, his shipping business. And now he is befriending and going to war with Jehoram, and he's almost going to die of thirst. <laughs> how, how, you know, you got this million-man army and you guys die of thirst. What is that? <laughs> That's poor planning. We're coming to come to that. Logistics is a big part of war. You can have the best army in the world. You run out of bullets or run out of food or water, you're done. Uh, you know, I, I couldn't understand when I was in the infantry, why are you always running? Well, because you got to haul ammo and water, and you got to be in good shape to do that. you still got to fight. So um, most people don't think about that. Verse 8, Then he said, Which way shall I go up? <clears throat> and he answered, By way of the wilderness of Edom. So Jehoshaphat, he's letting the idolater plan the war. And the plan was, actually it was a good plan that was poorly executed. So there's Moab on the, if you look at your map and you see the Dead Sea, to the right, to the east, is Moab, east of Israel. So you can either cross over the Jordan uh, to the north of the Dead Sea, and, and now you're between Ammon and Moab, which they did not want to be because Ammon would come and attack them from the back, from the rear. So the plan was, I'll march my army from the north of Jerusalem, uh, I mean of Israel, pick up your army at Jerusalem and in Judah, go past En Gedi, come around the Dead Sea, pick up Edom, who's to the south of Moab, and then we go north just a little ways and attack Moab at their weakest point where they don't expect to, to get the hit. It was a good plan, except, you know, halfway through the trip, who brought the water? <laughs> no, it's like, I thought you brought it. And it just killed the whole plan. So you have, I don't know that, I don't think Jehoshaphat brought his entire of course he did not. He left garrisons behind to defend. Not, he probably has 500,000 men on the battlefield, just his army. A significant number to feed. And, and the livestock that you have to have to feed them, they need water too. So this uh, started out as just a, a wonderful plan. It made sense, but um, the planning it, it, the details, it failed them. As, and I've quoted this a lot because it's just a true part of life, you know. Uh, it, it's a saying, tactics are for amateurs, logistics are for pros. Well, it's not entirely true, but there's truth in it because you can have all the supplies you want and you don't have any tactics, you still lose. You have to have them both. And um, <laughs> I was just reading about, I can't remember the amphibious ship that burned up in San Diego a few about a year or two ago, it, it, the ship burned up because nobody wanted to take command. I mean, it's like, what? This is yours. No, the ship's in dock. It's not ours. It's yours. No, it's not ours. It's under your... <laughs> so these naval admirals are going back and forth, and the ship's burning in the meantime. They can't get a plan together. 
and it's a total loss, billions of dollars. Um, so, you know, as a Christian, we look at this and we say, okay, there are lessons here for me with battle plans, with going forward in life, with organization. Even if it's not a fight, maybe it's just the, the, the fight of life to survive, to have resources, to not run out of water. Um, you know, everybody walking around with water bottles now, that wasn't, I, when I was a kid, you, know, you wanted a canteen, you went to the fishing shop, hunting fishing place, Army and Navy store, you got yourself a canteen, but you never used it. And by the time you used it, it was all rotten inside. But now everybody's got a jug of water with them. Does it sound like a criticism? Because there's criticisms in it, but, you know, got to have your water. So, I'm sorry. It was random. Well, I'm not sorry. (laughs) It's just an observation. All of a sudden, people need a lot more water. Well, we are closer to the sun. Because when I was a kid, I was this tall. And now, at this height, I'm closer to the sun. So, anyway, back to this... um, Verse 9, so the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. Now that makes three kings, three stooges. And they marched on a roundabout route seven days, and there was no water for the army, for the, nor for the animals that followed them. <laughs> See, you know, it reads in the English as though the animals were just, hey, let's just follow them. Uh, but that, of course, this was food and, and supplies being carried by the animals also. Not water, though. <laughs> Nobody. But, uh, um, if you've ever been out of water, at the end of where well, you've got to have water, it is a mean situation. And it is a very volatile situation, at least my experience. I have had one experience that I can recall where there was no water and a lot of men and very hot. And it looked as it was though you were walking through a minefield. The tension was very high. When the water showed up, uh, everybody was controlled. But you could see that it was very fragile. And you better get your water and move so the next guy could get his water. And anyhow, there's a lot of tension going to be with this. This is a 70-mile trip um, for part of the army even more. Edom doesn't have that far to go, but they're still out. Verse 10, And the king of Israel said, Alas, for Yahweh has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. This is an insult. A very foolish man he is to make such a comment. Uh, He fails to make plans, and he's blaming God. Jehoshaphat said, What's the battle plan? Well, he took the lead. He was supposed to do the whole thing. I mean, it's very simple. You delegate it to a junior officer, and you say, put together a battle plan, and I'll look at it, and if I like it, we'll go with it, or make adjustments, or whatever. So it's all on him. No way is he going to admit that his false system of worship is going to work, and Elisha is going to really take him to task on this. It's so easy to blame God for not answering prayer. I mean, amongst the righteous. Forget about this guy. He's, he's just a creepy guy. But for the, even the Christian, it's so easy to blame God when something is really going bad. And we have to sometimes fight it. Not all the time. Sometimes we're there, but other times, it's, you know, it can just be a, a, the, the wrong buttons or the right buttons, whatever perspective you take, have been pushed, and it can be really tough. Anyway... 
uh, his expression of dismay indicates that he considers Yahweh responsible for this situation that he got himself into. I wonder if God directed Elisha into that area of the world, which he would otherwise have no reason to be there, is, is pretty much desert, because the Lord is anticipating that this is going to happen, and he puts the prophet on standby, because he's going to be there. I mean, they came to this battlefield and this route on their own accord, guided by their own views, their own policies. God never spoke to the kings and said, I want you to go do this. This is something that is all theirs. Um, if Elijah is shadowing them, following the army, the scouts would have reported it. If he's just in the area, they would have picked that up. And that's how we get to verse 11. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of Yahweh here that we may inquire of Yahweh by him? So one of the servants of the king of Israel answered and said, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here, who poured water on the hands of Elijah. So Jehoshaphat is the one that wants prayer. He's the godly man. He's the one that's just got to be a prophet around. Some we have, we need, the kings could not get direct access to the Lord as, uh, as routinely so, but the prophets could. And, um, of course, Jehoshaphat is totally uncomfortable with any other prophets than the faithful ones. He would not have been comfortable with, if, if they were prophets of the calf worshipers, he would not have recognized them. But he initiates the call, which makes you say, well, where are the calf-worshipping prophets? Uh, did, you know, we never read of them, really, not as prophets. They were false believers. Christians should know how to reject those who are trying to sneak into the faith. Mormons, you know, the Mormons, when they first became, started with, you know, hey, Joseph Smith's got these cool sunglasses. He can see things that none of us can see, right? Uh, anyway, um, they were very clear. We're not Christians. We are Mormons. We follow, you know, this additional information from this angel and all the other complications that go with their religion. Well, in time, they said, you know, recruitment is down. We need to kind of rebrand ourselves, change our image a little bit. And so they became known as Latter-day Saints, still Mormons. And then they said, that's not enough. We go LDS. They're not Christians, uh, and the Christian must classify them as hostile towards Christians. They are enemy combatants. They have a false gospel, and uh, their, their, their doctrine is out of hell. And, you know, to think that, oh, but they're, you know, they're so this, uh, yeah, stop it. First Kings 22, verse 5. And this is Jehoshaphat, the last time he was in this predicament with the, grand, uh, the father of this king, Ahab. Uh, also, Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, please inquire for the word of Yahweh today. And that's when Micaiah comes forward and uh, gives the prophecies. Everybody knew Elijah was the prophet. There's no mistake about that. And so when it said Elisha, who faithfully poured water on, a, on a Elijah's hands, uh, that was uh, automatic approval. 
because he was appointed by God. Verse 12, and Jehoshaphat said, the word of Yahweh is with him. And so, of course, Jehoshaphat knew this. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. Now, technically, Edom doesn't have a king, but ah, we're not going to go into all of that. But he's leader of the Edomites, and therefore he's a king. They didn't want to, you know, politically incorrect to say, we're kings and you're not. So they just, yeah, well, make him a king too. I don't know. <laughs> Anyhow, um, kind of funny when you think about it, when you look at all the people who accommodate wrong things just so nobody's feelings gets hurt. So, I mean, what's that participation award? What is that? I mean, who's the guy that, or the gal that thought of that? We need to give something to the losers. Well, they got something, some motivation to work harder next time. <laughs> That's what they got. Uh, anyhow, they, um, Jehoshaphat, of course, says the word is with Elijah. God speaks through this man. We need to find out what to do because we're dying here. This is a serious situation. On the pages, it seems like, well, they ran out of water. No, they, this is death. They can't, they gotta, they're at the point of no return. They can't make it back home to get water. The Dead Sea is there, but you can't drink any of it. So, verse 13, Then Elisha said to the king of Israel, because they went down to him. Again, pause there. How, how, how did they know he was there? The scouts had to pick, have picked him up. And why was he there? God had to place him there. Or else the story just doesn't make sense because there's really nothing there. What are you doing down here? Well, I just wanted to kind of bathe in the Dead Sea. Yeah, well, look, you float in the Dead Sea for about a minute or two. Say, so, okay, let's, what, let's do something else. It's not very exciting because the whole time you're trying to keep it out of your eyes. Well, um, verse 13, And Elisha said to the king, What have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. But the king said to him, No, for Yahweh has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. So he's doubling down, but we'll get to this. So here, the prophet Elisha, he's zeroing in on this king. Zero tolerance, zero respect, zero ambivalence, <laughs> zero neutrality. He's not, he said, look, I'm not neutral in this. You're guilty. I'm not. He's, uh, you are, a, you know, he's just going to open this up. And he's going to say, and I don't even like you or your face. He's, he's coming to that. He says, go to the prophets of your father and your mother. And to the prophets of your mother. So he, he, says, he says, go to mommy and daddy's gods. You want help. Their gods are from hell, where you're from. Go to them. Could you imagine standing in front of, a, let's say, a, a president of the United States, and he asks you, can you pray for me? And you say, no, I can't pray for you. You're a baby killer. You're, you're perverted. you got like 50, you got 40, 11 things wrong with you, and that's just at the beginning of the count. Well, that's what the prophet is doing to the king. He's, I mean, he doesn't care if they don't like it or not, and he evidently knows they're not going to kill him. He's the most important man on earth to them right now. Go to your mommy and daddy's gods, not even acknowledging the calf worship that he is now has revived. Uh, he hasn't completely put out the Baal worship. That won't come till Jehu comes along. Jehu kills this king, and incidentally, and he gets rid of the Baal worship. He does it very slick too. Everybody who loves Baal, join me, and they come join him. He said, "Kill him." We'll, we'll get to that. 
But what makes a false religion false is that they get their ideas from Satan, not God. That's what makes it a false religion. Incidentally, Judaism is not a false religion. It is just an obsolete religion by God's doing. It is is like the husk of the fruit. It has served its purpose and it's developed beyond Judaism. And and so there is a, you know, that's why the Old Testament is so powerful to us. It's just as valid as the New Testament. But we have to also understand at what point... uh, or where are the places that we're no longer obligated to, uh, what we're no longer obligated to practice. For example, if the Jews rebuilt their temple and reinstituted animal sacrifice in our day, it would be anathema for us as a Christian to offer anything on that altar because Christ is our altar. We have the cross, and that's what the whole Hebrew letter is about, and that's where Paul says that Judaism is obsolete those are the translated words into English from the Greek, and they are accurate. Well, back to this. But the king of Israel said to him, No. <laughs> In other words, I'm not going to seek Baal or Ashtoreth. When he tells him, Go seek your mommy and daddy's gods, he says, No. And then he now wants to say, this is Yahweh's doing. Because in his little twisted head, he thinks he's worshiping Yahweh with these calves, and he doesn't appreciate that he's not uh, accepted. Uh, it's sort of like, again, the Jehovah's Witnesses. If you told a Jehovah's Witness, I can't pray with you. There's no way I can pray for you that you would abandon that satanic religion that denies the lordship of Jesus Christ, amongst other wacky things. Uh, but um, he's um, not a believer, this king, with his hybrid religion. It says here at the bottom of verse 13, For Yahweh has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. So he's localizing the plight. This is Yahweh's doing. This is his jurisdiction for his own stupidity. Oh, one other thing. You know, maybe you're a voracious reader and you're reading about... The problem with being a... The responsibility of of a voracious reader is after you run out of good things to read that you don't start reading bad things just because i got to read something. That is how Satan twists people up. There are trees that you are not to eat from. Stay away from them. Uh, there are very few who can enter into the cults and occults and come away unscathed. Uh, Walter Martin was one of them. Dave Hunt, well, and there have been other Ron Rhodes. There have been those that can read those satanic materials and not come away interested in those religions. But we have others who will read some of their materials and say, well, you know, they make a good point. They don't make any good points. The whole premise is wrong. And it is a trap for you to admire anything about them. There's so much more in Christianity to admire. You're so smart. What's the name of Hosea's wife? Uh, yeah, so you got homework to do. Acting like you're done with the Bible. And then when we're finished with that, we're going to quiz you on Chronicles. So there's plenty to do in the Scriptures. Don't you dare let yourself get bored. I think a lot of good pastors start out good and become bad pastors because they get bored with the Bible. They've read it so many times and studied it so much, okay, it's just not doing it for me. Well, then you need to get on your knees. You need to overcome that. That is a trap. Okay. Now we got that settled. Um... Fortunately, I'm f- speaking for myself because there's nobody in the back of me to speak for me. <laughs> I, 
I mean, I've been there. I've, you know, this is, I'm, this is, I'm so familiar with this section. This is Satan. This is Satan trying to tell me that I'm so familiar with this section, I don't have to dig, in it, in, dig into it anymore. And uh, that is, again, a critical feature of our faith. Verse 14, And Elisha said, As Yahweh of hosts lives, before whom I stand, surely, were it, were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not look at you nor see you. <laughs> Gosh. Now remember, this really isn't Elijah. This is God speaking, but Elijah likes it. <laughs> I mean, I, put yourself in his spot. Wouldn't you relish the moment to be able to tell a, a diabolical president what you re- or a speaker of the house what you really thought of her, him, it, they? You know, you got your pronouns all Ooh, look at you, the pronouninator. All right, anyway, <laughs> the pronoun whisperer. It is the stupidest thing, and Satan is pulling it off. These people are so dedicated to their debauchery, debauchery that they'll, they'll kill you for not, for not uh, celebrating their insanity. Well, anyway... Um, what is the first thing out of Elijah's mouth? Yahweh. As Yahweh of hosts lives. I mean, he gets it right out. I am a Christian. As, I, you know, the classic of Jonah. I am a Hebrew. And he comes, you know, I serve Yahweh. He comes right out, even though he was on the, <laughs> on the lamb. Uh, still, his identity was intact. Uh, it's kind of dumb of Jonah to boast about his faith while he's <laughs> trampling his faith at the same time. Anyhow, uh, Elisha is doing that. Instantly running the flag of God up the pole in front of everyone. I am not the prophet of your God, King of Edom. I do not serve your God, King of Israel. I serve, of course, uh, the Lord of hosts, the real the true God. Uh, And he is, right now, the great military force. Because of him, this invading army will will reach Moab. Anyway, one other thing. Invading armies have to be very big. Uh, I think today's calculation is uh, 20 times the size of the place, the force you're attacking, because you're going to just suffer. My point is, there's a lot of thirsty men here, and their lives are in the hand of, of the man of God. Three kings and their armies um, depend on him. So he says, as Yahweh, before whom I stand. Now his teacher, Elijah, is said to have said these exact words twice. Well, we're going to read, when we get to chapter 5, he'll say it again. This is the, he, he too is recorded to have used this twice, probably more likely uh, in life, but it's recorded twice each. And what a testimony to both men. To the teacher, Elijah, who succeeded in transferring this to his student, and to the student, who is not trying to say, well, you know, I'm not Elijah, I'm going to blaze my own, make my own ministry. Uh, you know, that's just, you know, some kids, kids do that, you know, I'm going to go outside of my father's footsteps and show that I can be a man too. Well, if that's your motive, that's that's probably not too too good. If your motive is, well, you know, you know, dad likes, you know, uh, I don't know, working on cars, but I prefer to steal them. Then, um, you know, maybe that's a profession. (laughs) All right. 
And I don't even need to comment on that. Could you imagine somebody, what did you mean by that? Um, give me your keys, I'll show you. Before whom I stand, surely, he continues here in verse 14, surely were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not look at you nor see your face. For, yeah, for that thing that you said, blaming God, blaming God for what you did, trying to reduce Yahweh into this jurisdiction of this is his territory, but, you know, the God of the golden calves, or whatever is happening here. Or who's got time to sort it all out? Uh, this is God's grace, and God's grace does not violate justice. God's grace, I think this is very important, God's grace never is a violation of justice, but the proper administration of mercy to hopefully cancel out judgment. That's why God gives mercy. And look, maybe you'll figure this out. I'm going, you know, in the, the, the story of the man that owed the great debt and he was forgiven, the idea was that he would forgive the other man that owed him less amount of money, and he did not. He was very violent towards that one and unforgiving. So uh, when God shows grace and mercy, it is with the hope of, in return, gratitude that leads unto salvation and avoids judgment. So the prophet is saying here, when he says, I would not look at you nor see your face. I'm going to paraphrase this and uh, see if you agree with me. I can't stand the sight of your blatant, blasphemous, bloated face. Do you think he was meaning, is that the meaning behind this? I appeal to your sense of reason. <laughs> I think it is. He's saying you're a blasphemer, you follow Satan, and I don't want to look at you. And if it weren't for Jehoshaphat, I have nothing to do with you. John, John the apostle says, you know, don't even, don't let these people in your house, don't even say hi to them. When they're actively attacking the gospel, as, you know, when the Jehovah Witnesses come around, they are actively attacking the gospel. And you don't owe them something. If you can say to them, listen, would you like to hear the truth or would you like me to chase you off my property? Which one do you want? Because I'm not listening to your side. I have nothing to gain from you. Uh, you should see the look on their faces when you do that. How do I know? <laughs> call, them, call them devils uh, right out and, and see what happens. Anyway, and not a mean-spirited thing, but just no nonsense. And they're not trying to just hurt their feelings. They're trying to stir them up. Years ago in New York, I used to take them out all the time. I, I was just, you know, really waiting for Saturdays. Saturday mornings, I'd camp out by the door. They're going to be here. And I remember this one young couple, and I just laid out about why Christ is the Son of God, and just chopping down there. I don't want to talk about all the blood transfusion stuff. Who do you say Jesus is? You're not getting me all over the map just to be wrong there too. Who is Jesus? Why is he worshipped? Worshipped. You do this to anybody else, it's wrong. Say the things about Jesus Christ, about an angel, you'll be blaspheming. You know this. And at the end, they were speechless. And so I said to them, you're in a cult. You, you're a young couple. You need to get out of this stuff. Uh, of course, they, have, uh, they probably got their mom and their dad in it. I don't know. But they were silent. They went away somber. I've often wondered what happened to them. Uh, you know, didn't have tracking devices back then. 
So, anyhow, back to uh, this. All the characteristics of all the characters in the Bible are still active in people. And they have always been and they will always be until Christ buttons it all up. If someone is a heathen, if they're arrogant, if they're spiritually cowardly, if they're a savage, if they're a liar, if they are into self-worship, these are characters from the scriptures. They're alive today in, in other people, these characteristics. If a person is devout, if they're humble, if they're brave, if they're gracious and brave in Christ, uh, true to the scriptures, loyal, well, these are characteristics of men like Daniel, for instance, and, and others. Um, then they are alive today in believers. That means scripture is relevant. It will always be relevant. It has everything to do. These stories have everything to do with our lives. They're not just, you know, a, a lecture on what the Bible is doing or saying. Verse 15, But now bring me a musician's. Then it happened when the musician played that the hand of Yahweh came upon him. <laughs> the prophet realizes, you know what, I'm in the flesh. <laughs> Stop calling this guy names. I don't want to see your face. <laughs> Actually, God doing it. But he realizes he's in a bad mood. And in no condition to prophesy like this. How else do you account for this? How, how else do you say, Elijah, why do you want a musician? Because I'm telling you, these guys got my dander up. And I'm about to, I'm about to you know, <laughs> go off on this guy. No, maybe you guys, you know, maybe you don't feel this way. Because when you put your coat on, you've got to get your wings in and... Your angels out there. Well, the other group, though, I think what I really think is I think all of us understand. I think all of us understand what the flesh is. And this is what we're looking at. This great man of God dealing with his flesh. And he asked for a musician to come bring. Uh, just And the musician is, is, is going to praise the Lord Remember, I referenced the army of Jehoshaphat going out to battle a year earlier against these people. What was his battle plan? He put the musicians up front, in front of the army. Unheard of. Why? Because they were bad musicians. No. <laughs> what did they do? They sang praises to the Lord. And that's, that is what they just kept singing the praises to Yahweh. So, uh, this is Jehoshaphat. He's bringing his people with him. They're going to bring a musician up. And I believe this musician is going to sing praises to the Lord. And if you come to church and you have been dealing with, you know, the, the challenges of driving in on the road, or maybe, you know, family interactions that aren't ideal, and you get into the sanctuary, well, the music is supposed to start unraveling that stuff that has twisted itself around you so that when the Word of God is preached, you're, you're a little bit more relaxed. You're a little bit more receptive. It's not 100%, depending on, depending on the individual. But it is a, a good practice to sing songs unto the Lord before sitting still to hear what the Holy Spirit has to say to you. And He is going to always say something. Uh, if the man of God is preaching from the scripture, the Holy Spirit is always saying something. Many people leave a church because they're getting convicted too much. They want to find a church that doesn't have conviction. And, uh, you know, don't blame the pastors if they're preaching God's word. Anyway, 
These three kings put the prophet in a sour mood. Jehoshaphat for allying himself with two reprobate kings. I mean, that is, you know, still he's a godly king, but that's still irritating. It's like, what are you doing with these guys? Uh, and then, of course, he had to deal with the other two. And so this transition is necessary. Verse 16, and he said, thus says Yahweh, make this valley full of ditches. Verse 17, for thus says Yahweh, you shall not see wind, nor shall you see rain. Yet that valley shall be filled with water so that you, your cattle and your animals may drink. Well, the fact that they went out and started digging these holding ponds is impressive. That they believe this man is their only hope. Uh, the man of God is the only hope. You know, we have people say, uh, I have heard when I came up in Christianity, I mean, prayer is not the last hope. And I, I don't, sometimes it is. Sometimes prayer is your last, you know, your last stand. Uh, I, you know, I, I, it's not always to be that way, but there are times where the only thing you've got is prayer. That is the case with these guys. They have no choice. They can keep doing what they were doing and die of thirst, or they can follow the prophet's instructions. And you'd like to think that, man, someone would say, the prophet Elijah, his God is my God. Uh, in Israel, because Judah had more of a chance of having people like that. Verse 18, And this is a simple matter in the sight of Yahweh. He will also deliver the Moabites into your hands. So the prophet says, the water's going to come. There's not going to be any rain. I don't know, underground springs, dry wash filling up. However God did it, it's miraculous. And not only am I going to give you pools of water, but I'm going to have you conquer the Moabites. And... Um, uh, nothing is impossible for God. He's going to bring the victory. Verse 19. Also you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city and shall cut down every good tree and stop up every spring of water and ruin every good piece of land with stones. This is a scorched earth tactic. Uh, you remember Tecumseh Sherman employed this in his march to the sea. Uh, it is a common practice to break the will of the enemy to fight. Whether you like it or not, it is, a, it is a tactic of war. It is God saying, I, need to, I want you to stop them from retaliating. I want you to hinder their economy so they're more concent concentrated on trying to eat than trying to build an army to retaliate. You must hobble them as a people. The part about the trees, well, that's fair game. Deuteronomy said they weren't to cut down fruit trees uh, in Canaan, the promised land. Well, they're not in the promised land. They're outside. And so God did cut them all down. Use the wood for fortifications, uh, you know, fuel, whatever you need it for. Uh, this is, um, the Lord has sort of taken off the gloves from the army. I'm going to give you water, and I want you to go slaughter. I mean, some credit, a little bit for the rhyme. No, it's not in my notes. I just thought of it. Verse 20, now it happened in the morning when the grain offering was offered, that suddenly water came by way of Edom, and the land was filled with water. So the underground springs or the mountain water, wherever it's coming from, uh, it, there it is. It's at the time the Jews in Jerusalem were offering, making the morning sacrifice. Here God uh, gives them the water. So they had to make it through the night on whatever they had. Verse 21, 
And when all the Moabites heard that the kings had come up to fight against them, all who were able to bear arms and older were gathered, and they stood at the border. So they knew this army was on the move. Uh, just for instance, caravans would have reported, hey, there's a large army of Jews and Edomites, and they're probably coming your way. So they knew this was going, that retaliation was coming. They mustered the troops, verse 22. Then they rose up early in the morning, and the sun was shining on the water, and the Moabites saw the water on the other side as red as blood. So they arrive at the battlefield, and these pools of water, they dug these ditches out to, to, to hold the water. Uh, the Moabites were fooled by the standing water, this optical illusion. You have the, the reflection from the sun. You've got heat waves, uh, the, the breeze across the water, and it's making them think that this is blood because water's not supposed to be there. Why would you think this is water? There's no water. It's the desert. So what else could it be? It doesn't look like pools to them. It looks like the ground is covered with, with water. Uh, when I, I remember I was in Anchorage, Alaska, and the place where I was staying, the house, you could see Mount McKinley, tallest mountain in North America. And at certain parts of the day, it was an optical illusion because of the atmosphere. The mountain looked like a stick. It just, or you know those lava lamps? Uh, that's what it looked like. And it's just, uh, I've got photographs of this. So, um, and this was long before Photoshop. Uh, this, so optical illusions, there's some serious stuff. They're spiritual illusions also. We may come back to that. But they think this is blood. This has happened before in Scripture, and therefore it's happened before in the history of the ancients. Second Chronicles 20, this is when Jehoshaphat had that great victory. For the, whoops, let me get a little ahead of myself. They're thinking the invading armies, the three kings, have turned on each other. And that's where this blood is coming from. They've slaughtered each other. And there's precedence for that. That's where the precedence is. A year ago, when Jehoshaphat's army, Second Chronicles 20, verse 23, for the people of Ammon and Moab stood up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir to utterly kill and destroy them. And when they made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they helped to destroy one another. This was a, uh, an alliance against Jehoshaphat, and they wiped each other out. In Judges chapter 7, when Gideon comes and blows the horn and cracks the lanterns, we pick it up in Judges 7, verse 22, when the 300 blew the trumpets. And Yahweh said, Every man sought against his companion throughout the whole camp, and the army fled. So my point is, when they see this field of blood, they're saying, well, you know, this is not unheard of. This has happened. This is what they've done. They've killed each other. Verse 23. And they said, this is blood. The kings have surely struck swords and have killed one another. Now, therefore, Moab to the spoil. So they, um, it's really a trap. And this is what the prophet Elijah did for them. Interesting that we don't know what an ancient battlefield with swords would look like. In modern weapons, it's a, it's a little different story. And there's still a lot of bloodshed. But apparently, war with swords leaves a lot of blood on the ground. And this, I think, comes is what he's saying. Hey, this is classic. Uh, this is a battlefield here. Verse 24. So when they came to the camp of Israel, Israel 
rose up and attacked the Moabites so that they fled before them and they entered their land killing the Moabites. So the Moabite army just waltzes on down to pay themselves with the spoil, which the Jews will end up doing to them. And that illusion, the fruit of their illusion is reality that the Jews were laying in wait. So when we come to Second Thessalonians and we read, for this reason God will send them strong delusion that they should believe in the lie. We have that illustrated in this story. That would make a good lesson to a willing, a listening unbeliever. Because, you know, there are unbelievers won't give you a chance. And then there are those that, that will. And uh, there it is. <clears throat> Verse 25. Then they destroyed the cities. And each man threw a stone on every good piece of land and filled it. And they stopped up all the springs of water and cut down all the good trees. But they left the stones of Kirharaseth intact. However, the slingers surrounded and attacked it. Well, the scorch earth to, you know, uh, just pile rocks onto good farmland certainly would have been very difficult for the people to get to undo it. You had a whole army, do, uh, you know, bringing these rocks to, to good land. Uh, they couldn't take this city. So the slingshotters Surrounded the city and just a pelting it like like a, you know snipers with with slingshot. You got a platoons of, of slingers just hurling stones to harass them, but not not much more to harass the garrison held out in this uh, Moabite city. Verse twenty six. And when the king of Moab saw that the battle was too fierce for him, he took with him seven hundred men who drew swords to break through the king of Edom. But they could not. So he takes almost a battalion of men. It's a sizable force, 700 men. Uh, they're not going to be easy to hide them in night or day. You hear them from a mile away. They try to break out and they fail. Verse 27. Then he took his elder son who would have reigned in his place, that is the crown prince, and offered him as a burnt offering upon the wall. And there was great indignation against Israel. So they departed from him and returned to their own land. So what's happening here is Misha the king. You know, other kings have been defeated and not resorted to this. This savage man decides on human sacrifice of his eldest son, the crown prince. And he does it on the wall for everybody to see it. The enemies, as well as his own people. I mean, the smell of the human flesh burning. I mean, just this is just disgusting. This is satanic. This is the type of religion that surrounded the Jews. Stuff like this. Uh, you know, of course, they would do this with children. And here it is, you know, an adult. Or we assume he is an adult. Uh, today, we're surrounded by those who demand their right, they say, to kill the unborn. And so we see Satan still using the same tactics. He just kind of makes it a little bit more sophisticated to make it appealing to those who want it to be appealing. This um, king, Misha, is doing this to his god, Chemosh. He feels it is worth it. That's going to bring the victory. Um, the Jews, of course, Leviticus 20 prohibits human sacrifice. 
It says here, and there was great indignation against Israel. Well, not Judah, not Edom, Israel. Somebody is hating on Israel. Well, I think it is the Moabite people. They're, you know, they're just, this, this is an indignation. It's disgusting. It's unclear in the text exactly who, but it, to me, this is the easiest way, uh, the, uh, the sensible way, just to, you know, write the first thought. They're hating on the Jews. Now, some will say, some of the commentators say, that therefore invigorated the army of the Moabites and the Jews who could not take them out. I don't buy that. I think that the Jews were repulsed by this. And they just said, you know what? We're done here. That was a mistake. They paid for that. They were told to raise these cities, to not let, you know, to, to just hobble them. And because they did not, Misha goes on to regroup, and he goes attacking uh, Israelite uh, Israel's uh, villages, taking prisoners, and writes on that stone how he did this. It's because they didn't complete the victory. This is what makes them stooges. They caught the, all those deaths were for nothing. What was the outcome? So they departed from him and returned to their own land. They failed to obey the order to ruin their ability to wage war. Um, as a Christian, when we share our faith, we want to go all the way with it and offer them conversion. Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. Again, you know, if you confess with your mouth uh, that Jesus is Lord, that God raised him from the dead, if you believe, you can be baptized. I mean, go all the way and not halfway. This is not easy you don't just know this as Christians. It helps when someone comes along and says, you're sharing Christ with someone? Offer them conversion. Or else, what is it all for? Um, anyway, there's always a reason to doubt the Scripture. But I have learned there's always a greater reason to overcome that doubt. There are so many elements, science, historians, the archaeologists, the archaeologists that dig on, you know, biblical sites. Called, they even have a name for this group. They're uh, biblical minimalists. And what they do is they'll find a site that's on, in the Bible, and they try to just block out the Bible that has nothing to do with the Bible, that the kings mentioned in the Bible are all fictitious characters. I mean, this is on a scholastic level. Uh, there are others that will just inject subtle doubts either way. God will answer those questions if you remain uh, subject to him. He will clearly say, listen, this is a lie and here is why. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our Father, a lot of lessons, as always. Uh, they're exciting lessons. But... Uh, they're exciting because they're supposed to do work inside our hearts, contributing to the edification of our walk in Christ, that we would be satisfied with our scripture, with our faith, and not look elsewhere. May we all be made stronger no matter what. And may you get us all home safely tonight, we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>